It's me. That's not the way I usually start, but I just thought I'd do something different because I'm trying to cheer myself up here a little bit. Greg Kokel with Stand to Reason, and I'm trying to cheer myself up because I'm really, really bothered about something we're going to talk about here this first hour. And uh, I'm glad I can kind of chuckle, keep my good humor about it. But it, it, in, in this, it's quite serious. Um, we we have uh, I've talked in the last few weeks about the um, whole Alistair Begg thing, and my concern is, is sometimes Christian good Christian people say things that are foolish, so we don't make demons out of them, you know. And uh, they're still good people, even though they may have bad ideas. And we've just, in a certain sense, in a dramatic way, confronted an example of that <clears throat> during the Super Bowl, when uh, here's one. 100 million? Is that right? Is that the right number I got? 100 million was the number I got. Are people watching? This is a lot. As I think it's the most popular event uh, on TV in the whole year. I mean, I watched it, and uh, lots of other people watched it. And it's a great opportunity to uh, sell goods and also to say something productive about the kingdom and the gospel and about Jesus of Nazareth, if you have the money. You have to have a lot of money, though, because it costs $7 million a minute to say anything during Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, but apparently there was a lot said by a Christian campaign uh, titled, He Gets Us. And um, I want to be careful to reiterate what I said earlier about Alistair Begg, that just because there are good—let me back up—just because somebody, somebody says something foolish or does something foolish or pursues a foolish line of thinking about something uh, doesn't mean they're wicked <laughs> or a false teacher or whatever. But they, it is appropriate to talk about it and to offer clarity and um, exhortation regarding the dangers— of a view offered by, or maybe a project offered by otherwise good people, though the project is unwise or maybe even harmful. And that's my view regarding he gets us. In fact, I would say it more strongly, I think the he gets us campaign is atrocious. Um, but I don't want to just talk about it with you, because I have Natasha Crane with me, our good friend at Stand to Reason, author of Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, uh, talking to your kids about God and talking to your kids about Jesus. Those are three books. They're excellent for moms, okay? But her most recent book, Faithfully Different, um, casts a much wider net theologically, and uh, she has very capably done a deep dive into cultural issues that are challenging the church. And you know that I've talked about in the past, my concern now is not so much for the non-believing world, but for for Christians, <laughs> for the body of Christ, and protecting them from the world without, and also from the wolves within. And if not specific wolves, at least sometimes bad ideas that penetrate by good people into the church, and I think this is uh, one of those bad ideas. Natasha, thank you for spending some time to come on and chat with me about an area. That, actually, you've done quite a deep dive here in, in the He Gets Us issue. You've written a couple of pieces about it, right? 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's always great to talk with you, Greg. I wrote a, an article last year called Seven Problems with the He Gets Us campaign. That went viral last year. It actually took down my site because so many people were looking for information after the Super Bowl on the campaign. And so I decided this year, as the Super Bowl was coming up, that I wanted to look at it again with fresh eyes, see had they taken any of the feedback, any of the criticisms that people had leveled last year? Had they changed anything? What is there to say now? And so I went back, I dug back in. Uh, in particular, last year, a lot of people asked me, hey, did you go through all their Bible reading? plans because that's Mm -hmm. important too. And I hadn't done that last year. So this year I went through all 43 days and read all of their Bible reading plans. And so I wrapped all of that into a new analysis and updated one. And that's what I put on my site most recently. And the title, he here comes the He Gets Us campaign again, why its portrayal of Jesus is still a problem, Natasha Crane, Feb 6. So uh, that's up. We'll put a link to it on our show. But if people is there an easier way to find that piece than that memorizing that whole title? Or could they just go to your website? And find yeah, it? you can just go to my site, natashacrane.com. It's C-R-A-I-N. Just click on blog and it's the most recent article there. Okay, good. Thank you for doing this, by the way. Um, I read the whole piece, both pieces, actually, one in the past. I think we might have talked about it on the air. I'm not sure. Or I talked about your piece and recommended it because I thought it was an even-handed and a fair analysis. And uh, it's interesting uh, what you, in a sense, have become to the body of Christ. And I just want to showcase this a little bit, Natasha, because um, you started out as a mom (laughs) teaching your kids apologetics, basically preparing them. And then you realize there's... You have something to say to other moms doing that. You started your own uh, website, blog, whatever. I, uh, now you have – what is the name of that? Well, actually, it's changed names, I think, over time. And then you wrote it, the It's books. just my name now. It's just NatashaCrane.com. Okay. that They can get your blog there and your YouTube, right? Because we, you interviewed me for Street Smart, so what's yeah, the name I don't, of that? I, well, I don't it's do YouTube so much, but it's my podcast, so it's called the Natasha Crane Podcast, and okay. that's where I've had you on. It's one of my most popular podcast episodes, actually, <laughs> of all time. So it, it's a it's a great episode. Oh, that's sweet. That. And you do something with Elisa as well, Lisa Childers, is that right? right. You still yeah, do, we have a joint called? podcast where we look at cultural issues every week for just fifteen to twenty minutes, and it's called mm-hmm. Unshaken Faith. Okay, so unshaken faith. So the reason I go through all of that is not just like this is what you're supposed to do at the beginning of a show. Um, I think that Natasha is a tremendous resource to the body of Christ in a number of different ways um, at a time when we need more people like Natasha, people who can see what's going on. Uh, I have, frankly, with this He Gets Us campaign, Natasha, I have heard from different people, sometimes luminaries, that are very sanguine about the He Gets Us campaign. Like, wow, this is great. And I remember the first time I saw anything about it was in Las Vegas a year ago, and my daughter was playing volleyball there, and there on the big screens all the way, all around the uh, the, the 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 strip there in Las Vegas were these He Gets Us things, and then we had the Super Bowl, and now we have it again. So why don't you take a moment for the rare bird who didn't watch the Super Bowl to explain a little bit about what this campaign kind of looks like to the viewer? Well, it's it's important to first say that this is a, a huge campaign. So this is not just about Super Bowl ads. If any, anyone is right. wondering, hey, why are we still talking about this? You know, didn't that come and go last week? No, they have made it very clear that this is going to continue to be a very big campaign. It's getting bigger and bigger, presumably more Super Bowl ads, but also there's a huge website behind it with tons of traffic to it. Uh, they're continuing to have billboards up around baseball games, for example. I mean, th- this is going to continue to be everywhere. So that's why it's important to talk about mm-hmm. it. But it's a hundred 
$100 million ad campaign that does feature ads like the ones that we recently saw. It features a website, lots of articles. They have uh, Bible reading plans on their site. They also have a way that you can connect with local churches if you become interested in that on their site. So it's just a really broad campaign to get people interested in Jesus. And I think the wording that they've used is that they want to rescue Jesus's reputation from the quote-unquote damage done by his followers. I know that was the wording that was last year. I don't know that they still have that on the site, but it gives you an insight into where they're coming from, that Jesus's followers have kind of ruined his reputation. We need to do something about that. Pardon me for the groan, you know, but it is so painful to hear that because— uh, I mean, you and I both know with our trafficking and these issues, and me for 50 years now, um, and 30 years would stand to reason, when I see polls about the way people think about Christians, um, it annoys me when any um, when, when, when any luminary um, suggests that we have a PR problem, because we don't have a PR problem, in my view. The, we have a we have a theological problem, and the theological problem is we are the people who are getting the scorn from the world are people who are characteristically being faithful to Christ. The world doesn't like that message, never did, and therefore they're mad. And then, of course, the uh, allegations come. You're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, you're arrogant, you're unloving, you're hateful, which is the standard way of characterizing it. And this is a really important concept that the left has picked up on to to uh, disparage not just nasty Christians, nasty in a, in, 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 a, in, in the sense of an accurate way of looking at virtue. They're nasty because they don't agree with the left. And so it's so frustrating to me when you have a massive amount of good people, Christians, otherwise good people, I would say, I'm just being very charitable to them. I think they're trying to do something good. But what even that statement plays directly into the confusion and not just the confusion, the libel on the church. And here, when I'm using the word church, I'm using it in a more restricted sense, not just Christendom. There's all kinds of problems with Christendom. 65% of the people in this country I self-identify as Christians, okay? But I'm talking about – but they, they're, most of those don't annoy the left because they believe all the same things. It's those who are theologically faithful, and, and it – I mean, maybe you have a different feeling about this, but it just annoys me so much when I even hear suggestions that people from our side are saying, yeah, look at – look at how bad we are, and look at how accurate the assessment of these non-Christian skeptics are. We got to clean up our act. Does that bo- – I mean, I know that bothers you, but – Oh, it bothers me so much. I mean, I, I just could not agree more. The whole premise of the campaign that they need to rescue his reputation from from that of his followers, I think, is a faulty premise. Because like, like you're saying, I just don't see anywhere where people really have a problem with Jesus. It's interesting because if people read the Bible and knew their Bible, they'd probably have more of a problem with Jesus. Yes. But people tend to not be familiar with what Jesus right. actually taught. So the cultural understanding of Jesus is that he was this very loving guy. He really hated the system. He really 
really had a bone to pick with those religious leaders, and he's a great moral example. That's mm-hmm. what, interestingly, culture thinks about Jesus. That's exactly the Jesus that the He Gets Us campaign is giving people. So what it really does is it just doubles down on saying, you know, Jesus is this great guy, and it's all the followers who are the problem. But like yeah. you're saying, it's the followers who are the messengers, the ones who are faithful, who are the messengers of what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a case of, you know, don't shoot the messenger, right? We're right. hated for sharing truth. I don't think we really need to solve a problem with Jesus's reputation. We need to solve a problem with people not understanding the value of truth and why there's yeah. good reason to believe that what Jesus actually said in its entirety is mm-hmm. true. They have uh, this sense, and, and this is, uh, I wrote a piece a couple years ago, I, you probably read it, um, it's called The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus, and I, I, part of it was because there's, the leftist notion is just completely inaccurate, of course, to the record. Um, these people love Jesus because they've never read Jesus, all right? Uh, Jesus of the Gospels was among the most judgmental kind of people according to today's standards. Now, of course, he was he was very generous to everybody who was willing to come to him. But, you know, even the poor people that were looking for food in John chapter 6, after they got fed, you know, the 5,000 got fed by Jesus. These were looking for more food. Jesus wasn't championing their effort. He was accusing them of coming to him for materialistic needs instead of addressing the salvation issue that he came for. And, of course, a lot of people quit following him after that. So I I think a lot of these folks don't even get it. But when I—on the left—but what troubled me was—and the reason I wrote this piece, which you can find on the website, and I'm sure Amy will link to it, the legend— of the social justice Jesus is that there were so many good Christian pastors who understood that Jesus came mostly about sin, but he also campaigned on behalf of the poor, and he campaigned and advocated for the outcast. Now, this is just false, just completely false. I read every single line in every single gospel uh, trying to create a profile of the purpose that Jesus came to fulfill. And this is not the picture that we get of Jesus in the He Gets Us campaign. Can you give us a general idea? We'll get into more details here. General idea of—and you've spoken to it a little bit already, but the the kind of picture, the profile of Jesus that is presented to us in those Super Bowl ads at all of who Jesus is and and what's the significance of He Gets Us— yeah, I think you get the biggest picture of what they're trying to do through the website itself, because the ads, obviously, we could talk about the ads themselves, and there are many problems with those. But when you go to the website, what you get is a fully human Jesus. So he is a good moral example. He's somebody who, just like it says, quote unquote, gets us. So, you know, it talks about how, you know, Jesus had to um, deal with judgmental people and Jesus had to deal with religious people and not liking him. Jesus had to deal with bias. Jesus was fatigued. I mean, all these examples of how he gets us, but it's a fully human Jesus that is presented. And so one of the things I talk about in my article is that it really doesn't matter if he gets us if he wasn't God, because that Mm -hmm. just means he's another human like George Washington, who understands what it's like to be human literally who cares, right? Mm -hmm. It only matters if he's God himself, and you don't get that from the campaign. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, when people say, oh, well, it's just, you know, a partial picture, okay, I disagree with presenting him even partially as the beginning of a marketing campaign. But the greater problem is that the partial picture that's given, it's not just incomplete, it's inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And that is really the heart of what I want people to understand, because 
a lot of good, well-meaning people are saying, well, it's just seeds. You know, it's pre-evangelism. It's just seeds that you're planting. But if you want those seeds to grow into a specific kind of thing, an interest in the real Jesus, then you need to plant the right kinds of seeds. And what you see on the website, and this is so important for people to understand, is that it's a very conscious attempt to wrap Jesus into progressive social justice thinking. And so you see him wrapped up in a way that's very consciously going after not just skeptics, and it's been made clear by people associated with the campaign that they're targeting skeptics, but specifically skeptics who see the world through this lens of critical theory. So Mm -hmm. just to give you a couple of examples, you know, when you go onto the website, you see them use all these hashtags. So you'll see this list of hashtags, inclusive, activist, struggle, refugee, justice, outrage, bias, and judgment. When you see that, if you have any familiarity with the progressive social justice world, there's just no question that this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to appeal to people who see the world through that lens. And yeah. then when you look at how the articles are written, you can see that they're playing into all the same ideas that those pe- those kinds of people who see the world in that way, they're, they're going to be attracted to. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 the issue, is that it's not, again, it's not just an incomplete Jesus, like, oh, we're just sowing seeds. It is an inaccurate Jesus wrapped in a lens that is designed to make the very target audience right. think of Jesus the exact same way that they already do. The, that's the seeds that are being sown. Yeah. That, those are the seeds that are being sown. Your view of Jesus is the correct view, not the view of these nasty, narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful Christians. Now, um, and I'm using the word hate here because this is a popular word in leftist language, especially critical theory language. And what hate is, on their view, is anyone who disagrees with any part of the leftist agenda, especially those that are informed by critical theory, where you have the oppressor and the oppressed, and the oppressor is the stronger one, and the oppressed is everyone else. But the stronger one, according to critical theory, is, well, let's just make a a profile. Here's the worst of the worst. White, male, Christian, uh, patriarch. (laughs) What else? Heterosexual. You know, that, that pretty much covers the bases, all right? I guess the only thing that would be worse would be someone who's a person of color who buys in to the ideas of those people as they've characterized them. So what's very interesting to me um, is here you have, and this is probably a commercial that everyone uh, would have seen because it's so dramatic. And actually, the production values are exceptionally good, would you say? Yeah, I, I think I mean they they have a very slick marketing campaign. I mean it's yeah. very clear that they have that they have people working on this who are not just good marketers, but who really do want the world to think of Jesus in this way. Yeah, and, and, and this... they actually they actually do say that on their website too. They have a statement on their website where they say he gets us as a diverse group of Jesus followers with a wide variety of faith journeys and lived experiences. Our work represents the input from Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as well as many others, though not Christians, who share a deep admiration for the man that Jesus was. 
and mm. we are deeply inspired and curious to explore his story. So you see that there are not just committed Christ followers, as defined by mm. the Bible, who are working on this. And so when I see that slick marketing campaign, I say, yes, those are good marketers, but those are also people who know exactly what they're doing and how they're presenting Jesus. Right. And I and hopefully many in our standard reason community are going to see through some of this stuff. Like lived experience doesn't mean experience at living. This is a term of art of critical theory called standpoint epistemology, and uh, uh, and it and it, it it is the idea that the oppressed have the right to speak because they understand the truth of the world, and the alleged oppressors don't have the right to speak because they're oppressors, and they're just going to speak in a way that continues to advance oppression. So the white the the white folk is the white male Christian people <laughs> to just give you the the archetype of the most evil are uh are must be silent and let others who have this other lived experience of being oppressed speak. And by the way, this is exactly what you see in one of the most prominent uh, of those. It's a 60-second commercial. It's the foot-washing commercial. Remember that one? Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, there you see all these different people washing different people's feet. Okay. And, and it's all different slices of society, Right. The problem is, if you look closely, who is washing the feet of who? And the characters are all, the ones that are, whose feet are being washed, are all members of the so-called oppressed groups, according to critical theory. And all the ones that are washing the feet are members of the so-called oppressing group, Virtually every one of them, I think, was white. One was a cop washing the feet of a of a of a, a young teenager, maybe a gangster or something like that, black. And what you don't see is you don't see a person of color washing a white person's foot, or 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 some gangster washing the policeman's foot, which would be a kind of balanced characterization of love one another, which is the point that they're trying to make. And so this then just becomes a way of visually reinforcing the critical theory narrative being done by Christians. Yeah, and I think those are two really good examples that you use between looking at the lived experience language and looking at who is washing the feet of whom in that ad. I think that there's a lot of, if I can be blunt, naivety in the church where people who aren't familiar with this whole progressive lens just read right past something like the words lived experience and they don't think anything of it. I think, what's, what's the big deal about that? Because they don't know that there's this whole iceberg under the tip of that word that you just mm -hmm. described so well. And then they see the ad and they say, oh, I just thought it was really nice. Like this was mm -hmm. really humble and loving and showing how we should all get along and wash the feet. But if you understand that progressive lens, then you understand this was very much a message about the oppressor and the press. Mm -hmm. There's so much that's embedded in that commercial ending with Jesus didn't teach hate. Because right. of course, that's trying to be juxtaposed with all these images where the oppressors are, are finally the ones yeah. who are, are bowing down and, and doing what they need to for the oppressed. 
blessed. So there, there's such a deeper message here that a lot of people aren't seeing in the church. And I think it's that naivety that leads to people just saying, well, you know, it, it's just so loving and it's just fine. People are making mm-hmm. too much of a deal out of it. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think I would just summarize the problem for me as when people in the church are disagreeing about this ad, I think it comes down to two things. Either one, they don't understand the whole progressive social justice lens, so they're just not picking up on the problems to begin with. Or number two, they pick up on that, but they wouldn't call it a problem. They and say, yes, this is a social justice Jesus, but I don't think that's a big deal without recognizing this is the exact same underlying theory that gives us things like reproductive justice, um, that you know heterosexuality is inherently oppressive, that whites are inherently racist. It's all the same ideology. Right. But when you right. have people in the church who don't recognize the danger of all of this and that underlying ideology, then you get people saying, well, yeah, I see it's kind of a social justice Jesus, but I don't think it's that bad. Right. And I think those are the two big division points. Well, it's like the progressive side and the critics who are uh, who who are critical of classical Christian because of the message, classical Christians. This just there's nothing about anything that I saw that any of those people could possibly disagree with. All right. Now, I mean, when you think of Jesus' ministry, you think of the times when he encountered people, whether it's Nicodemus, on, in a certain sense, on one extreme of presentation. He was pretty rough with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. Or the woman at the well. There actually is a whole thing about the woman at the well, one of their little things on their website about the woman at the well. And there's a lot of good things in it. But the question is how it turns the corner. Um, because because he, he did get around to the issue of her sin. All right. He was crossing cultural borders with that. But he did get around to the issue of his, her sin. And this is the case all through the Gospels for anyone who takes the time to actually read Jesus. I want to go back just for a moment, uh, Natasha, to the um, foot washing uh, clip, the 62nd. And you, you're right how they end. It's a lot of images that are very powerful. No question. Really powerful. It's hard not to be taken. It's hard not to be touched by them. They are touching. That That's not our concern. It's what is the message underneath that is subtly being communicated. And this is what we always have to watch for in uh, this kind of thing. And you, you have an MBA in marketing. And so you, you, you're really in tune with these kind of things. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But at the end, it has a statement. And you, you gave the first half of it. Jesus didn't teach hate. Right away, we've got that hot button word. He didn't teach hate. In other words, he, this is what the skeptic and the progressives are hearing. Jesus didn't teach what all those other hateful Christians, that is, classical Christians, taught. Well, of course he taught all of that stuff. They just didn't read it. Okay, but it also goes on. He washed feet. He gets us, all of us. Now, I'm just thinking of those statements. Jesus didn't teach hate. No, duh. <laughs> this is not helpful. Everybody knows that. Uh, not hate proper. But if you look closely at the content of what he said, it would now be characterized as hate in our culture. But the other thing is, Jesus didn't go around washing people's feet. Right. Well, we talk about the circumstance. The one circumstance we know of when he washed feet is very specific. 
Well, he's washing the feet of his disciples. So a lot of people have pointed out that this is just a mischaracterization. You know, it makes it sound in the ad like Jesus is going around washing everyone's feet to show that, yeah. you know, we're all one, we're, we're all united, you know, everyone love each other. But that wasn't the, the circumstance at all. Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples. So mm-hmm. we don't have any kind of commandment to go around washing feet per se. So they're taking, mm-hmm. they're, they're completely taking this out of context. And it, it's a powerful image. You know, if you don't, if you don't know the background of it, if you don't know the context, it's a powerful thing to say, you know, oh, this is a humble action. And that's what they focus on, by the way. If you go to the website and you look at the article that's associated with the ad, it talks about humility, that this is the humility of not just washing someone's feet, but allowing your feet to be washed by someone else. Mm-hmm. But that, but that, that's not really the context of what Jesus mm-hmm. is doing when he's washing his disciples' feet. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much more that's behind that. So well, they're taking a theological point and basically yes. watering it down to something that's yeah. meaningless. Well, Jesus is humbling himself, and it was really annoying to the disciples. They didn't know what to do with that. They were bugged, that's for sure. But at the he's there teaching his disciples about being servant leaders. You know, as I did this for you, you do this for others. This is how leadership—and this is the last night of his life, is John 13, uh, the Upper Room Discourse, you know. And and so it's, it's even in that, it gives a completely false understanding of even that action of foot washing. So um, I know in your piece, the the he here comes the he gets us campaign again. Why it's portrayal of Jesus is still a problem. So this is your retake after a year and uh, looking doing a much deeper dive in the material. Um, you you ask uh, four questions in your piece and then you answer them. Can we use that um, yeah, as kind of a motif here to do an assessment of what we have uh, of this whole approach? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and, and offer the the questions that, and you can take them one by one if you want, um, th- that you use to assess the uh, the whole campaign. Yeah, so the, the four questions, just so people can see where this is going. Number one is, does the He Gets Us campaign get people interested, or skeptics specifically, interested in Jesus? Mm-hmm. Number two, does the He Gets Us campaign get skeptics interested in the right Jesus, which we've been mm-hmm. talking a lot about already? Number right. three, do the He Gets His Campaign reading plans in the Bible take people to the next level of, level of understanding Jesus? And number four, does the He Gets His Campaign direct people to theologically solid churches for continuing their search for truth? Right. So a couple of important things in those questions is that this is focused on skeptics specifically because that has been what has been identified publicly as this is the, the target audience. And number two is that it's they've been they've made it clear that the action points that they're trying to get to, aside from just rescuing Jesus's reputation more broadly, is they're hoping people will get to the reading plans, the Bible reading plans, uh, and or pursue a connection with a church. So the questions I'm asking there, number three and four, get back to, okay, well, are they actually successful in doing this? So maybe just taking these one at a time, number one, does the campaign get skeptics interested in Jesus? Well, we don't have access to all the specific data of how many people are going to their site and and how much, uh, you know, that would be in terms of like a business return or anything like that. But a couple of interesting data points come from an interview that Sean McDowell and Scott Ray did on their Think Biblically podcast with Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer is the new dean of Biola's Talbot School of Theology, and he has been a consultant to the campaign. So he's not mm-hmm. a spokesman. He makes that clear. But at the same time, he has been very close to it. And so he, he gave some very helpful information on that. And he said that over over 600,000 people have signed up for Bible reading plans and, quote unquote, hundreds of thousands have been referred to churches. 
So if we're just saying, did the campaign get people interested in Jesus? Well, we don't know exactly what they're interested in when they go searching for things. We don't know, you know, where they're coming from in their worldview, where they're going. But if you just look at some numbers, yes, people have been interested in the campaign. They go searching for it. Uh, hundreds of thousands have apparently signed up for these reading plans and wanted to get connected to a church. So in a very rudimentary sense, yes, it has gotten okay. people interested in Jesus. But then the question, some I guess this is the next one. Is it the right Jesus? And, and one one just surveys the commercials and simply asks, what is the message about Jesus that is being communicated here, especially in light of one's hopefully accurate understanding of the Jesus of the Gospels? Is it the same message? So we're going to get to that in just a second. But the point I'm making here is, if you have skeptics, 600,000 people responding, okay, what is in their mind that they're, they expect to find more of when they get to the material that they're enjoined to look up. So we can calculate that number, 600,000. Well, that's, that's an impact, okay? That's people, but, but what 600,000 and to what end? And then what do they get in the next step? My sense, Natasha, is it's not drawing the right 600,000. No, look at God can use anything, you know? And even, you know, uh, even a Balaam's jackass, basically his donkey <laughs> God used, and I probably shouldn't put it that way, Balaam could, could use a tonky donkey, okay, because I don't want to make parallels with any people who disagree with us on this point. The, I'm just simply saying that God can do anything. He can use ill, ill, whether in pretense or in truth, Paul said in Philippians, that the gospel be preached. Of course, the question is, is the gospel being preached here? Is this what is being communicated? So we get one kind of profile of Jesus in these ads, and people are invited to get more information, and they get the many, 600,000, according to this um, assessment, have responded to get more information. Okay, what do they get in the sec, the next step? What, what kind of Jesus do they discover when they go to wherever they're sent to get more information about the Jesus who gets us. By the way, before you answer that, I'm just say he gets us. The us is in gold, a yellow gold. It's a standout letter. It's a different color than the he gets. And in Jesus' name, J-E-S-U-S, the U-S is also in gold. In other words, what is this about? And it's very tempting to conclude, I think, with justification that this is about us. This isn't about Jesus. It's about us. And I think that's part of the marketing appeal. Anyway, you could say something about that or give us number two, wherever you want to go with this. Well, I just want to add on to your comment about how God can use anything, because that's absolutely true. And I said that at the end of this article, I said, I hope that a lot of good comes from this. I hope that in spite of everything that I've said and all the concerns I have that, you know, that God does do a lot from it. And but at the same time, I want to say that I, that's the pushback that I've heard from a lot of people on an article like mine and other people who are critiquing it is that, well, God can use anything. If one person comes to know Jesus through this, then it's successful. And I and I, so I just want to say, I think that's really flawed thinking because 
because as a Christian, we could literally throw discernment out the door on everything with that logic. We could always just say, well, God can use anything, so we don't have to be discerning about this or that. And I, I don't think that's the message of the New Testament. We hear over and over about the importance of discernment. And so there, there is a need to look at things and say, yes, of course, God can use anything. That doesn't mean that what we should be doing is throwing our discernment out the window and just promoting any kind of Jesus. This is serious stuff. And in the, the idea that, well, if it's one person, you know, oh, look, 600,000 people. But that does untold damage if it's the wrong Jesus to all the other people That's who right. have just had it more solidified in their head that they still like Jesus and they still still hate those hateful Christians, which can actually make it harder to talk about Jesus in this culture. Oh, my goodness. People See, aren't seeing the other end of it. It is not a benign kind of a thing that may seem silly. And would, and then somebody said, well, whatever, even if one person, okay, um, well, for that one person, thank God. But what about the multitudes of others who are having false ideas reinforced and their hostility against cl- genuine followers of Jesus reinforced as well? I mean, that's that's the bigger picture. You know, it's, uh, it's, 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 when you put a little poison into a meal that's otherwise tastes good, it's still going to kill you. And this is what I don't think people are taking into consideration. It, it, it's a cost benefit. And by the way, we haven't even talked about the cost. Okay, if only one person becomes a Christian for the $7 million that were spent for one commercial, then is it it's worth it. Well, it's not worth it if that same $7 million could have been spent elsewhere to have a salutary effect, bringing thousands upon thousands of Christians into the kingdom or people into the kingdom to become Christians. And so that's why this if just one thing is not good thinking, it's childish thinking. I, I, it's not, as you put it, it's naive thinking because there's a lot more going on here. But what about the second question, the right Jesus that they, is it the right Jesus that they discover when they follow the prompts? Yeah, I, I, so I think we've we've covered a lot of the key points on this one that I included in the article that it's not the right Jesus. Again, I'm going to hammer this point home because it, it just keeps coming up in, in the critiques that it's not just incomplete, it is inaccurate. I just heard a pastor on the radio this morning talking about this campaign and basically saying, you know, it, it's just kind of nitpicky when people are criticizing the campaign because, you know, we're expecting too much of an ad. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I just think you're not considering the full picture here because mm-hmm. it is inaccurate for all the reasons that we talked about. Uh, I won't repeat what we've already said about it being a social justice Jesus, but mm-hmm. maybe just one other point that that's not been talked about is that this can easily be construed to affirm progressive Christianity. So mm-hmm. for the, we've been talking a lot about how skeptics perceive it, who are caught up in a critical theory view of the world. But what about people who already identify as Christians, but are progressive Christians? And basically agree on all the social justice thinking we've been talking about, but identify themselves as Christ followers, they just are having their own beliefs solidified too. So it affirms a version of progressive Christianity that the world is already okay with. Mm -hmm. The world doesn't hate all Christians. They hate all Christians that don't go left in the same way, like you said (laughs) earlier. So this leads people easily into Mm. succumbing to progressive Christian beliefs and theology and thinking, oh yeah, I I guess that Christians can be like this. I've been told before in a very personal way um, by a loved one that, you know, there are lots of Christians who are not like you. 
There are lots of Christians who who love everyone and accept everyone. And so this split between progressive Christians who throw out the authority of the Bible to have their own standards and agree with the world, this is confusing to people. And this ad campaign and everything in the way that it presents Jesus is very much in line with that progressive Christian Jesus. And so it mm-hmm. affirms a whole theology that we have to really be careful mm-hmm. of in the church. Now- you know, it'd be helpful. I'd just take a moment, if you would. Uh, we've used the term progressive Christians a lot here, and the term kind of helps understand what group this is. These are Christians who have progressed beyond the unseemly things of Christianity, but that means they've rejected things and embraced other things. What are the kinds of things, very briefly, in case someone's not aware of what we're talking about, the kinds of things characteristically, I know it's a diverse group, but characteristically that progressive Christians reject and then also that they embrace the the people we're talking about here? How would you characterize that? Progressive Christians believe all kinds of different things because at the root, the one thing that they tend to have in common is that they're throwing out the authority of the Bible. So they see Mm -hmm. the Bible more as man's best ideas about God over time that are getting better and better as we evolve in our understanding, as we become more enlightened, rather than God's authoritative truth for all time. And Mm -hmm. so when you throw out the Bible as an authoritative and inspired and inerrant source, then you're going to have people with all kinds of different beliefs because now they're just going to be picking and choosing what they believe from this. Ironically, they don't just say, well, I'm not going to take anything. They still identify as Christians. So they're going through and they're picking out what they like and they don't Mm -hmm. like. And so what you end up with usually when you resort to that authority of the self is that you're going to end up looking just like the world because you're going to be convinced by the things that culture says. And so you really get this secularized Christian view. Mm -hmm. So they end up throwing out things like standards on sexuality. Uh, They really hate the notion of the atonement that Jesus would have to die for anyone's sins. Uh, any kind of exclusivity of Jesus is especially hated. Uh, definitely, they don't want any idea of hell. On the other end of that, they're very concerned about justice. And justice, I mean, that's a whole other topic. Of course, justice is really important, and God cares about justice. But we're talking about embracing ideas of justice that are consistent with the world's ideas of justice rooted in right. critical theory. Right, right, right. I can't think, as, you know, our friend Elisa Childers has uh uh, written a fabulous book called Another Gospel. So if people want more detail about about progressive Christianity, that's the place to go. But it just here's here's the simple way of looking at it. It's hard to imagine anything in the theological storehouse of progressive Christians that would in the least wise bother any non-Christian, especially a leftist. Right. You know, because all of their views are the same, they but they attach the name Christian to it, even though they've largely abandoned um, anything that's associated with classical Christianity. I, I was with Lisa last weekend in Ohio, and she she made the comment. She said, "Why don't okay, you got your own views. You're welcome to them, but why why call them Christian? Why don't find another name? Because there's nothing about you that's Christian." But the th- fact is, people like Jesus in a very general sense, and they want to be associated with him, and they want to have Jesus on their team, and so that's a big deal. Now, what you did this time also is you um you went into a kind of deep dive into the uh, the reading plans that are recommended. So you have, what, 600,000 people or whatever it was, that number, uh, that have responded to this and to, to go to get more information. Then some of that information, I don't know 
if you have the number, how many people have actually at least begun the reading plan. But it's a much smaller number than those, just just the way it works, right? So, right. but when they decide, okay, I'm going to go deeper. I want to read what you have to say about Jesus. I want to take this mini course. What do they encounter? Yeah, so so that's our, our third question. Are these Bible reading plans actually going to take people to the next level of understanding? Because so many Christians have come back on, on these critiques and said, yeah, but if it gets people into the Bible, then that's a really good thing. Again, we're not getting everyone to the Bible reading plans, but let's just say for the sake of argument that some good is going to come from that. So what do they get to? Well, there are seven different plans on version. That's the app that they're using to do this. And they have four to nine days of content altogether. There are 43 days. And so when I say I read through all 43 days, what I mean is they have a devotional for each of those days. So I read all those devotionals and then the corresponding Bible verse, or sometimes okay. there might be three that go with it. Let me go over that again. You're speaking a little quickly. I don't want anybody to miss. You read everything. I did. In those plans. I read all 43. Carefully. Yes. Yes. Got I read it. all okay. 43 days of the Bible reading plans because I really yes. want to see, you know, what, what are they doing with the Bible? Right. right? And what did you find? <laughs> you, you might you might think, well, they're getting into the Bible. It's going to be fine. But remember, their own language is in the devotionals that go with each day. And when we're talking about reading the Bible, most of the time, there are, it's like one verse or two verses. You don't get into mm-hmm. actual passages until later. But um, just a, as a broad overview, the very first plan that people get to, and you could do them in any order, but I'm assuming most people probably start with the first one. The very first plan uh, basically just continues in the way that they're presenting this in the devotionals to use progressive language and framing on everything. So I'll read you just a couple of comments to give you an idea for how it sounds. Um, And these are just across the seven days. They said, quote, the way Jesus called out the toxic religious and political systems turned history upside down. So someone might say, well, what's wrong with that? But if you understand the progressive culture, you know that religion and especially Christianity is toxic, considered toxic as our political system. So it appears once again to make Jesus favor that view. Another day is that Jesus made friends with people just as they are and let himself be known just as he was too, authentic, trustworthy, the kind of friend we all long for. So, of course, Jesus made friends with people as they are, but progressives are likely to read this as Jesus accepts you for whoever you want to be, so be your authentic self. I mean, even that language of authentic is a cultural word that is used today to just say, hey, be whoever you think you are. That's right. We have That's what to be— <laughs> The, yeah. the gender issue is all about exactly. that. Exactly. We have to be aware as Christians of what these words mean. It's not just authentic in terms of genuine. It means something else in the progressive context. Another quote, it says, the Samaritan stopped and cared for the Jew at his own expense, just like he would a neighbor, unlike the racist religious men who stepped over the beat up guy on their way to worship of all things. Again, it plays into the progressive view of the religious. And throughout these reading plans, there are constant digs at the quote-unquote religious and the religious leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Christians kind of miss the point here that when we're talking about religious leaders, it's true that the Pharisees were religious leaders in Jesus's day, but they're never explaining that whole context and why Jesus had a problem with the the Pharisees. It wasn't because they were religious. It wasn't because they held too strongly to their convictions. It was because they were self-righteous and they were Mm -hmm. hypocritical. He was Mm -hmm. calling them out for some very specific reasons. It wasn't Mm -hmm. because they were too religious in their beliefs, but Mm -hmm. that's how that he gets his campaign twists all of this to, and it makes people skeptical of anyone who belongs to so-called organized religion. You know, any pastors who might be out there who might be preaching God's word, they're going to see as 
religious people and religious Mm -hmm. leaders. How does that help the church when we continue to emphasize this idea that religious people are bad? So that day, that, that plan one, days one through seven, just continually goes through this kind of progressive framing. Let me make a comment about the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. What's ironic about the positioning of that particular um, parable if you will, um, in the text. And it's unfortunate because there's a heading there that says the Good Samaritan, and that's where people start. You don't start there. That's not the beginning of the context. The context is just above it, the two greatest commandments. And when uh, Jesus gives both commandments, one of the legalists, the text says, wishing to justify himself, asks, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus' answer is, your neighbor is your greatest enemy. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Point being, there is no possibility of adequate self-justification. We are all lost. So to people take this as a morality parable, and there is moral application to it, like is being done here. But that isn't the reason that Jesus told the, the gave the account of the the uh, the Good Samaritan. It was to demonstrate our fallenness and our inability to do what we were supposed to do. So, of course, that's not consistent with the progressive message at all. But it shows an example of the abuse of this very important uh, event or teaching of Jesus about the Good Samaritan. It wasn't about how to be good. It was about how we are bad and how we desperately need forgiveness. Yeah, you're not going to see that kind of theology in these these Bible reading plans and their no, devotionals. That is that is for sure. That that first one, that first reading plan was definitely the worst in terms of just constant progressive framing. The second plan, um, it's called diving deeper. It doesn't really dive much deeper. It basically um, goes on to say, you know, reasons that Jesus came were that he grieves with us, he understands us, he's vulnerable like us, he loves us, he faced hardships like us. Uh, obviously, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, and none of that would be mentioned here. It's all just a completely human Jesus again. The third plan questions Jesus asked. This really doesn't go any deeper. It's just kind of a disjointed set of questions. I will say, though, that this is the first plan. So out of the, we've gone through the other two. This is the first plan where you get any verse that refers to a supernatural Jesus. So suddenly Mm. you, you see him walking on water in the verses you read, but there's no connection made to that in the actual devotional content. So, Mm. you know, you could be forgiven if you didn't know Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God for wondering how this human was walking on water at that mm-hmm. point. Hmm. The plans four and five, this is where I think they brought in the committed Christians. So, I, and, you know, honestly, if I were going to write them, I would still probably do them differently, but it's like they just dropped in from somewhere else. It's like they had the progressive Christians do everything else from the ads to the website to all of the, the online marketing and the first plans. And then they're like, well, the, the funders wanted to make sure we're, we're telling people about Jesus. So let's make them happy. Could we get someone in who, who believes all that stuff about him being a savior? Oh. I mean, Uh really, I I hate to sound so sarcastic, but it's really how it reads. It is a jarring contrast when you get to plans four and five. All of a sudden, now we have Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the the kingdom. He's healing people. Uh, There's a clearly supernatural Jesus. We read that Mary knew that his birth was far from, quote unquote, natural. We have a doubting Thomas who wanted to personally experience that Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, all of this stuff is like dropped on you like a ton of bricks after having this completely different campaign. And so you see that throughout plans four and five, six and seven, they're nothing to talk about. You know, one's about joy, kind of some basic stuff. And then the the last one, what Jesus gave up is, is just back to the human Jesus. So you do get 
you get some of what you would hope for in plans four and five. And when I pointed this out in my article, we have a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, if they get to four and five, they're going to hear the gospel. What did you do before that? How much harm did you bring to that? And does that gospel message in four and five make any sense outside of the context of everything else? Yeah. And I would say it does. So you have millions watching getting one impression. You have 600,000 with that impression going to this material. And if those 600,000 go through the material, whoever makes it up to the fourth session, right. and we know how these things work. You know, there's a wild attrition, right? Oh, yeah, this is more of the same. I like this kind of Jesus. They got to wade through all this material, which is also distracting and not sound and accurate to get to the core, which is the gospel. And and, and maybe that's something that God will use. Uh, but, but, you know, my sense, I don't know. It, it's just too little too late, I guess, is my thinking about this. We just have a few more minutes here. What, what would you say about the fourth concern? Does Does the campaign direct people to theologically sound churches? I know that's part of what they do. Yeah, I mean, that that's a big hope that they have expressed is that people will get connected to churches. So you can go on the website, you can fill out a form to get connected with a local church in some way. Last year, this was one of my biggest concerns. How are you vetting these churches? I mean, according to the research that's come out of Arizona's uh, Christian University Cultural Research Center, there is an abysmal number when it comes to the biblical worldview of pastors, even. So mm-hmm. there are plenty of churches that ha- are being led by pastors that who don't have a biblical worldview. And with, if you understand that, then you know that you have to vet churches and you don't just send people to any church that claims to be a Christian church who kind of self-selects into the process and says, hey, oh yeah, we'd love to have people come through this campaign. It wasn't clear last year how they were vetting people at all, other than a couple of comments from marketers behind the campaign that said that we welcome anyone who wants to align with us on the He Gets Us campaign and our mission, which is sort of scary if you understand everything that we've been talking about. If you're looking for churches that align with that, you're going to get every progressive of Christian church out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked for an update this year. I tried to get a comment from someone connected to the campaign about it. Uh, I was not able to get any of that, and I don't see any further information that's been provided. So as far as I know, they continue to at least not be public with how they're vetting the churches beyond saying churches that align with the campaign. And in the article, I invited someone from the campaign to correct me on that if there is a stronger vetting process. But so far, I have not heard from anyone to that effect. And we have to understand this is this is so problematic because you are potentially taking people searching for truth and leading them away from truth when they end mm-hmm. up with the kind of church that would host a drag queen story hour, for example. Mm-hmm. So we should be really, really concerned about this. It's not just can we get people to a church, it's can we get people to a church that is preaching the word of God in its truth, truth and in its entirety. Well, if these are churches, as you just mentioned, they said are churches that align with the campaign, this is not a good sign to me. If you have churches that think that this is really a great campaign, that means they don't see what 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 they ought to be seeing, uh, things like you and I see and others in our field, because we know what to look for. The culture has so radically changed. E- even in the last five years, there has been such an, uh, and, and I think your book, um, Faithfully Different, does a great job. Uh, yeah, informing and preparing people and helping them to understand the ideas that are moving around, that are forming, uh, forming these 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 attitudes, and and actually forming Christians' views as well. And if they don't see how critical theory 
in particular, and critical race theory is just one slice of it, but the broader critical theory, how it's influencing so many things and how deeply it has informed this uh, campaign called He Gets Us. Uh, and it's all over. For people who understand this stuff, uh, just like I said earlier, it's 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 appalling to see this. Then the the churches they're going to be sending them to that align with the campaign are not going to be churches characteristically. There's going to be exceptions, but characteristically that are really going to make the distinctions that need to be made between the true gospel and uh, and and the kind of Jesus, I should say the true Jesus and the kind of Jesus that's characterized here. Tell us about the He Saves Us campaign. Have you seen that video? <laughs> I did see that video. It was interesting because uh, there there was a guy, I, I, I don't want to mess up his name, it's Jamie Bambrick, I believe. I might be getting that wrong, but he took it upon himself to make his own video kind of in the same style as He Gets Us. And instead, it was about He Saves Us. And it just went through and powerfully showed different people, uh, you know, who came from, uh, from a different background and a different life, like, you know, former New Age guru, former lesbian activist, former you know, this and that. And then at the end, it says, He saves us. And you see all the words uh, kind of rotate. He redeems us. He saves us. Um, I, I can't remember all of them, but basically it's it's a very powerful ad done in right. the same style and for the same length of time. And I love the ad itself, but I also love that he's showing people, yes, you can have a powerful, relevant, accurate message all at the same time in, the, in the, that same spot, in that same 60 seconds, because so many people, you know, like I said, are saying, oh, well, you know, you're just expecting too much of an ad. No, yeah. take a look at this one. This one made a great message, and it's something that people could respond to in the same way. If that had the whole campaign behind it, you could get to a website where people were led through thinking about truth, couched in a relevant way. You can be right. relevant as a marketer without being wrong, and that's what people aren't seeing. Well, if it says he saves us, then if somebody goes – uh, maybe not – 300,000, but 1,000 people just go to a website, they're going to get more stuff about how he saves us rather than how he gets us. And that we saw in their material for three sessions deep until you get four and five. And then you get some information about how he saves us if anybody else gets that far. If they only go three sessions, they're going to say, yep, yeah, this is my guy. I don't even know why I got to need to keep going. This is the same guy that, that I like and I'm behind and it's all the false Jesus. So anyway, Natasha, we're almost out of time. I got 10 seconds. It's always wonderful to talk with you and to have you on the air. And thank you for the deep dive that you've done in this material. And NatashaCrane.com, right? That's it. Okay. Thank Natasha, you so much. C-R-A-I-N. No extra vowels. Thanks, Natasha. That's right. <laughs> All right, friends. That's it for our hour here together. I hope that helps you to see that there's danger out there. And many good Christians... Do not see it. Rather, they play right into its hands, unfortunately. God can do anything, but we can't do anything. We're obliged to be faithful in what we say and how we say it. Greg Kokel for Standard Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.